I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. They told investors that the brand was a successful brand overseas and a factory was going to open up in Auckland and they would produce these products. But of course, they never did. And the real intention was to scam the investors, take the money and run. Hi, I'm Jesse Mulligan and today on Crimes NZ... We go back 60 years to investigate one of New Zealand's biggest fraudsters. In 1966, a Salvation Army captain was steering a barge up Waitamata Harbour when he spotted a mysterious suitcase floating in the water. So began the investigation into the activities of Robert Gardner. Joseph Sheehan, BEM, is a retired JP and former national head of the New Zealand Police's intelligence section. But in the 60s, he was a detective sergeant on this case. It was Friday the 17th of June uh, 1966. As you said, the Salvation Army officer was steering up the Waitamata Harbour by Browns Island when he noticed a suspicious suitcase floating in the water. Now, at that time, the Salvation Army had two islands in Auckland. One was Rotorua and the other was Motorua. Yeah. They were inebriates' homes. Drunkenness was an offence, and uh, if you appeared before the magistrate on multiple times, <laughs> you were sent down to the island to dry out. Wow. Every Monday, they transported the prisoners to and from the island, and it was on the boat Mahoe. Uh, that Captain Medlins was on. As he, uh, when he arrived at the Wharf Police Station, he unloaded his prisoners and he had found the suitcase which he had picked up. Uh, when he arrived at the Wharf Police Station, he unloaded the prisoners and then he started to make a couple of phone calls as to the names that he had found in the suitcase yeah. on documents. And he got in touch with uh, a young lady called Paulette Moran. She was the office lady at Leedram and Hartnell. Now, going back a step, we did a study to find out how this suitcase got into the water. Yeah. With the harbour master, we worked out that the suitcase had probably been thrown in the water at about 8.30pm the previous night from Oraki Wharf. Now, it had drifted up under the harbour bridge the tide had changed and it swept it down the Waiheke Channel and this is where Captain Medlins picked it up. 
<laughs> now, Jesse, that was probably one in millions of a chance to find that small suitcase. Yeah, pretty amazing Only, work that you were able to do to work out where it had come from in the first place. Yes, it was. What happened after that, at about 2 p.m. the same afternoon, Paula uh, Moran rang me at the police station, and she said that she had brought the suitcase from Captain Medlin's and given it to one of the office managers, a guy called McGurgan, who was her her boss. Yes, I understand. And and they they realised there was something dodgy going on, did they? Yes, they quickly found out that everyone involved had either fled the country or was about to leave the country. And so we got on the phone also and found that uh, a guy called Robert Gardner, who was known as Skip, had already gone the day before, and one of his cohorts, a Warren Chaplin, who was also an employee and in on the scheme, had also left for Australia that morning. <laughs> not not usually a sign that uh, things are above board, hey? <laughs> well, <laughs> what actually went on to transpire, that, that Gardner was a actual serial swindler who had mastermind several schemes of this nature around the world. Wow. Uh, he was known under 17 different names and was wanted by Interpol in numerous countries. Now, Gardner had been working in Australia running a similar style scheme, and he also had promised to bring into Australia Russian tanks and hovercraft for the Australian government. Huh. But his cosmetic company over there failed, so he needed a new place to try again. And that's when he got the idea to bring Liederum and Hartnell franchise to New Zealand. And um, what was their scheme? Well, th- their scheme it was to buy cheap cosmetics and sell them through franchisees to uh, dairies because pharmacies and supermarkets were the only place that sold cosmetics in those days. Now, Leader and Hartnell started in January 66, and this was actually at that time a new type of doing business that we hadn't come across in New Zealand. But of course, with all the loopholes in franchising, it was uh, good for scammers to take advantage of this. Right. What did they tell investors? Well, they told investors that the brand was a successful brand overseas and a factory was going to open up in Auckland and they would produce these products. But, of course, they never did. And the real intention was to scam the investors, take the money and run. How much money did he end up defrauding customers of, do you know? Gardner, or through Liedram and Hartnell, stole £86,700 we were lucky enough to recover £59,000, so the loss was kept down to about twenty-seven. Uh, now, he was charged with £62,500 when he came to court. A lot of money. money back. We were able to do that through a share broker he was using. So he had uh, predated checks that he was going to swoop on and, and clean out in Australia, but of course we had those stopped before he could uh, do anything with them. That's good news. Uh, and what about the suitcase that was dumped in the harbour? What did you find in there? Well, all the office documents 
were in the case. There were the agreements, the bank statements and beastie information, the distributor information. The dumping of it was left to Noel McGurgan and his uh, other partner in business, Patricia Keane, and she was a a high-class sex worker. Uh, Now, Noel was instructed to weigh the, the case down with a brick and throw it in the harbour the night before. But, of course, he forgot to put the brick in. <laughs> so it floated. Yes. Uh, what actually happened was, of course, with all the air out of the suitcase with the volume of documents in it, the, uh, the suitcase floated and uh, down the harbour it went. <laughs> uh, there were previous similar scams that had been running in Australia uh, under Leader and Hartnell franchise also about this time mm. but of course the promises that they had made to the, the customers over there the banks were getting nervous in Australia <laughs> so the alarm bells started to ring so Gardner and his associates thought well look we better get out of New Zealand now while the getting was good so that's how the suitcase came to be dumped in the harbour. Yeah, I mean, of all the way they dumped the records, that must have been one of the worst ideas. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, the, there's, there's another name here, Murray Stewart Riley. Where does he fit into the story? Now, Riley was a corrupt detective sergeant who, who worked in Sydney. Wow. And interestingly enough, uh, Riley was an Olympic rower and a double Commonwealth gold medalist. Wow. Uh, at the time, the taking of New Zealand one-pound notes out of New Zealand were easy to cash over overseas. Mm. And it was a common move for swindlers to do this and take them out in large sums of, uh, of notes. Now, as the distributors' money came in to Gardner's account, they would change them into one-pound notes and, and then take them out on the plane. <laughs> and the corrupt police such as Riley, would help them through customs and other areas in Australia. Gee. So how how did you catch up with this scheme of Riley's? Well, at the end of June the same year, 66, uh, after Gardner's Associates had been caught in New Zealand, a phone call came through to the New Zealand police to Graham Perry. Now, Graham was my detective inspector, and and my boss virtually. Yeah. Riley called Graham Perry and said that he had been given his name as a person who could help him to arrange bail for Patricia Keane and Noel McGugan. Graham was told that if he arranged the bail, there would be four hundred dollars in cash on the meat, and another five thousand split between them when bail was arranged. That's that's an audacious uh, phone call to make, really, when you don't know who you're who you're calling. Oh, absolutely. Well, of course, Graham told me about this phone call, <laughs> and we decided that we would call him back and record his messages that he gave us. Then we suggested that perhaps he get on an aeroplane and come over, and we could do a deal. Wow! But of course, uh, what actually happened? When Graham picked him up and the meet was at the top of Queen Street, Graham gave us the signal and another detective, Norm Souter, and I went over and 
pulled Riley out of the back of the car, handcuffed him and took him off to uh, the police station. That, that would have been one of the more exciting days at work for you, wouldn't it? Well, at the end of the day, he was jailed for nine months, so yeah. it was quite effective. And, and I imagine it would have made news back in Australia too. Oh, yes, it did. It caused several ripples. So, so what about Gardner, Robert Gardner? This is the guy who's sort of um, the architect of the whole scheme. Um, he was obviously moving around countries pretty easily, pretty successfully. Yes, well, when Gardner got back to Australia, he had then skipped again off to where we didn't know at the time. Mm. Uh, but it was finally found that he had gone from... Australia via LA to London. And uh, we then sent a message through in- Interpol to, to see if they can find him. Mm. And uh, they uh, they actually traced him to an address in, in London. And then we got uh, Scotland Yard to keep an eye on him to see whether he was coming and going while we got... Uh, charges before the court in New Zealand to get warrants out to extradite him from uh, England to New Zealand. Okay, let's so. come let's come back to him because there's all these other people involved as well, one of whom is Warren Chaplin. Remind remind me, what was Warren's part in it? Warren Chaplin was a partner of Gardner in Australia and helped him on the uh, Legion and Hartnell side of the right. business there. On the scam. Before they came to New Zealand. So he was in on the scheme when he when he came to New Zealand. So, so is it true but, that you um, flew over there to try and get him extradited? Yes. I flew to Australia, and while I was there, we had the case to extradite Chaplin back to New Zealand, but the case failed, and it failed on the, on the basis that Chaplin said he was just a pawn in the business and he was used by Gardner. So uh, there was nothing I can do, could do about it but come back to New Zealand. Did you meet the, the sex worker Patricia Keane over there or, or he had something to do with her as well? Yes, on the last night before I was ready to come back to New Zealand, Patricia Keane rang me and she invited me out for dinner on the basis of uh, no hard feelings, Joe. Uh, we'll have a couple of drinks before you go home. But I, I felt she was trying to trap me in some way. Yeah, that wouldn't However, be normal. That wouldn't be normal, would it, for um, someone who'd been under suspicion and you'd been attempting to extradite to um, invite you over for a dinner? No, it, it was a little bit unusual. But however, I, I accepted the the invitation on the basis that uh, I would buy the drinks and we would have dinner. But of course, I uh, had singles and I bought her doubles. Uh, <laughs> after a while, she. Uh, <laughs> decided she wanted to go to the loo. So she put a handbag down and a shawl and left it on the chair. And uh, off she went. Now, while she was away, I uh, had a look in the handbag. And there I saw a telegram, which was signed Skip. And it had a telephone number on top of it, which I memorised. And, uh, of course, what happened then... uh, I left immediately after that dinner and uh, got hold of New Zealand and we got on Interpol and, and, and traced where the call had come from. And it had been from a, a phone in London, but 
it, it had been uh, discovered by this time that Gardner had left LA and gone to London. Now, the, you're obviously using a lot of your skills here, uh, Joe. You, you know, you, you, you're playing it straight with this dinner guest. When she leaves, you're quickly going through her bag looking for clues, and then you have to memorise the phone number. That's all, you know, it's pretty cinematic stuff, I've got to say. It would make a good uh, good screen movie. <laughs> well, those days, uh, communications were different. Most of them were on what we call ticker tape, and phone calls had to be sent through a, a system where they were uh, downloaded and resent on, such as a telegram was yeah. sent by phone. You could trace back through the number. Yeah, incredible. You're talking to Interpol and talking to Scotland Yard, and what do you hear from them? Well, once we found them in London, we, we laid charges in New Zealand and got warrants out under the Future Defenders Act to, to get him uh, uh, transferred back to New Zealand, which, by the way, was our first extradition to, to London. But uh, what actually happened was that when we locked him up, the offences we charged him with weren't crimes in England. And the, a false pretense in New Zealand, as long as there was an intention to deceive, our law said that we could lock the person up and charge him. That couldn't happen in England. So there was a, a standoff legally, and I, I had to, to leave England in a hurry and fly back to New Zealand to get new information laid in the court so that we could get new warrants out. Well, of course, during this time, Gardner kept appealing mm. to get bail, and we had a hard job trying to stop that. However, by the time I got back to New Zealand, got the warrants, flew back to England again. They were about to let him out of the prison, but, of course, Scotland Yard jumped on him and served our new uh, warrants on him. So we had then opportunity to lock him up and try him again. Okay. And then at some point it's decided that he's going to come back to New Zealand, right? Yes. Well, of course, Gardner being Gardner and (laughs) had the wherewithal to do things, he started to appeal, and he appealed to the House of Lords. Uh, and, of course, that was, you know, the first time that our police had been to the, the House of Lords on a, a, uh, on a crime in, in England. And the whole thing with that also is the cost all started to blow out. We had a budget of, I think, it's about £400, and now we're up to £10,000 because we had to hire specialist lawyers in England to, to deal with the courts there. But as I said previously, we, we managed to navigate all those situations and finally we got the OK to, to bring him back to New Zealand. Yeah, but that wasn't the end of it because he didn't want to come on a plane. No, uh, he, he didn't want to fly. But he came up with an alternative and said, oh, look, how about uh, I'll go on ship uh, and I'll pay your fare also first class if you, you allow me to come back on the ship. He, he promised to pay your fare? Yes, he promised to pay my fare out as well. 
then he then he sort of offered me sort of a, a bribe and said, uh, you know, we we could get this through all right. But I said, no, no, Sonny, I'm sorry. Uh, there's, there's only one way back, and we're going to fly. But of course, what was happening all the time? I couldn't get fares on airlines because they didn't want to be uh, held up through a process that mm. he could serve on them to stop the plane from flying. Right. Because he said he, he had a, an illness and he even got a doctor to give him a certificate to say he couldn't fly. So things were getting pretty difficult at about this time. So I got hold of my boss back in New Zealand and they decided to send Detective Inspector Perry over to help me to get him out of the country. Yeah. But as things turned out, the courts ruled in my favour and said that we could fly him. Well, with many of the airlines not wanting to, to, to take us, what actually happened, we finally found that British Airways were prepared to fly us. And the reason they were prepared to fly us is because they had just brought Ronald Biggs back from Brazil earlier in the year and they got a lot of publicity out of it. Mm. And they said to us, look, Joe, we don't mind more publicity. We'll take you wherever you want to go. Well, that was one part of the problem. But the other part of the problem was he was wanted in so many countries, we couldn't land there. So we had to take an unusual route home, which went through uh, Germany and uh, up into Mumbai and uh, across to finally, I think we finished up in, in Hong Kong before we uh, could get back to New Zealand. Uh, but because because you were worried, you were worried you might touch down one of these places and they'd say, "Oh, we've got some business with this guy. Uh, we're going to keep him here." Oh, absolutely, because he had no passport, you see. And, uh, of course, any country could have snatched him, particularly the ones where he was wanted on crimes that he had committed previously. You got him back, though, and what was his sentence back here in New Zealand? Well, he was charged with 19 counts of obtaining money by false pretenses and fraud, and he was sentenced to two and a half years imprisonment, which probably was around about a reasonable sentence for for that time of a, when offences were committed. Yeah. You must have got to know him a bit uh, over all that time. Yes. He was an unusual character, but he was a typical fraudster. And, uh, you know, con men, they always think they have a superior intellect. They think that their brain will always carry them through whatever they're doing and uh, they're in that category which they don't drop their guard and they dress well and present well. They use top-shelf hotels and name drop. Uh, They seek media attention to promote their scheme. But, you know, usually corrupt people, after a while, their ego (laughs) lets them down and they try to run and make off with the cash. Wow. Now, Gardner, interestingly, he left school at the age of 14 years. He spoke four languages, and most of his funds that he had prior to coming to New Zealand were locked up in Swiss bank accounts. And he also had a 
another prostitute controlling those. So he, he was quite a smart operator. Did it feel good to put him away? Well, yes. Uh, you know, it was another fraudster out of the system, which was uh, the main thing. And, of course, the pattern of business, you know, hasn't really changed. Uh, and fraudsters take the time to just study these new ventures. And there were things like in the 70s when there was a transition from hard copy accounting to computers. Uh, many scammers took advantage of this. Then there were Ponzi schemes. Then in the 90s, there was also the, the barcoding schemes with fraudsters found loopholes in. And uh, now we're into the 2000s, of course, we've got the cryptocurrencies and uh, then we've got the ransomware where you freeze the computer and hold the company for hostage. Yeah, you've kept up with all the latest scams, have you, Robert? I presume you're retired these days. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, I'm well retired. But, uh, of course, you know, the scams haven't really changed since... Uh, Eve took the apple and gave it to Adam and said, it's okay. But of course, you can remember what happened to them. They both got kicked out of paradise, <laughs> as the Bible tells us. <laughs> Whatever happened to Robert Gardner when he got out of prison? Did you follow his, uh, let's call it, career? After he was released from prison in Australia, uh, in New Zealand, sorry, he was extradited to Australia. Unfortunately, he was given bail there. That was the last he was seen of in Australia. Wow. He turned up in Santiago in South America. Uh, one night, they locked him up in, in his prison cell, but next morning the cell was empty and he hadn't been traced again. Wow. Uh, there'd been certain suspicions that he'd been mixed up, of course, with other criminals and uh, could have finished up in Canada or, or wherever, I don't know. Thanks for listening to this episode of Crimes NZ and a big thanks to Joseph Sheehan for such an interesting yarn. Crimes NZ is hosted by me, Jesse Mulligan, and produced by Melita Tull, Charlie Drever, Sam Hollis and Ayana Piperhelian. This week, Charlotte Ryan interviewed our guests. Crimes NZ, the podcast, is put together by Liz Garten and the executive producer of RNZ Podcasts is Tim Watkin. Follow Crimes NZ on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.